quite a fun event tonight. Pete Sears, and if you don't know him, my goodness, you will, because, oh, you have, because he's been on so many incredible music albums and played with so many people. It's... uh, Almost like that Zelig uh, thing. He was everywhere at every time from 1963 in England when he first started, just outside of London and coming to America and has been playing here. So, I mean, over in England, he's played with Rod Stewart, Long John Baldry. My goodness, some incredible uh, British uh, rockers from those early days. Of course, his first band was Sons of Fred which we'll talk about. Uh, and he went through the psychedelic era with a Sam Gopal dream uh, back then. Of course, when he came here, he uh, started out in uh, Jefferson Starship, of course, with Grace Slick and Cantus. So what an incredible career. And, of course, um, he is playing now. And, in fact, uh, as you heard, he has, uh, was on the Ace of Cups uh, new album on a number of tracks and also on the recent Nick Gravenites uh, album, Blue Star. So, wow, we have Pete Sears in the studio. And Hello. We... <laughs> hi, hi, Pete. <laughs> How are you, man? Good to be here. Great to be here. Thanks for coming up and braving the uh, Friday night traffic. Yeah, it wasn't too bad. It wasn't too bad. Hey. Well, as I was saying, what an amazing uh, career you've had coming from uh, England and starting in the very early early 60s in fact in britain and maintaining your musical career all the way up to this very day that's true it's been a while it's been a long roller coaster of a ride you know so Um, yeah is is there a a secret to that longevity i'm just sort of slightly mad you know just hanging in there i think just just one thing leads on to another you know just (laughs) keep moving forward if you can as long as you can well, look, obviously on the way, it's all about contacts and people you meet and people you enjoy being with. And, and you yes. just uh, seem to be so fortunate with the amazing people you've you've been around and, and worked with. Yes, yes, I, I have been fortunate. You know how one thing just leads to another. You you sort of uh, move around from this crowd to that crowd, to that band, to that band, and just somehow just keep the thread going, you know. And uh, So it's been that way from the beginning, really. You know, just one thing leads to another. Been lucky. Well, well, that's it. And now, at times, at times, you know, I don't know if I've been lucky or not. (laughs) Stuff I'd rather not have. Anyway, some things are very subjective. (laughs) That's right. Inspiration. I always like to find out what inspired you to take uh, pick up music and and to start uh, in that vein. What. Actually, I was going to school, and I uh, used to. Uh, I grew up in this emergency war housing, you know, prefab. Remember the prefab? Oh, the old prefab. Yeah, yeah. For, for the guys, for the all the bombing in the war, World War Two. That is. Um, yes, yeah, good day. <laughs> <laughs> thought, thought I'd mention that. Bombed so many houses, they had to build these modular homes made out of asbestos with an okay. air raid shelter in the back, and the, for the returning troops. And so I grew up in there till I was about ten years old, and played with the friends friend had a piano an old piano and i'd play on this piano plonk around i must have mentioned it to my parents because they came home from school one day and there's this piano <laughs> glowing in the corner <laughs> pulsating with you know and uh so i just couldn't believe it they bought me this thing so they got me some piano lessons they, there was a blind piano tuner that mm. used to come by it was absolutely amazing wow. person oh my goodness and, a, and and an amazing pianist so um he made that thing come alive 
And so I just went off. I weeded this woman's garden in return for piano lessons. <laughs> and so I, you know, so I did that for a few years, got as far as the uh, Blue Danube and Fur Elise and all that sort of reading, a little, you know, basic reading. And then uh, discovered uh, blues and rock and roll through my uh, brother, my older my older brother, who was listening to Brubeck and and blues, Jimmy Reed and that stuff. And so I was kind of without realizing he's five years older than me, you know. So uh-huh. so I was kind of just a, around this stuff. And, and then I started listening to Otis Spann and Big Bill Brunzi and. So that was that. I just went off and, you know, we got a school was, band together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever have a chance in those times, to, you know, cause some of those um, uh, great blues people were coming over to England yeah. in those early days. Um, did you get a chance to I see I didn't see, um, I didn't at that point. I later got some, you know, good friends with John Lee Hooker and those mm. guys. But, but I didn't, at that point, I didn't uh, go to see anybody. But uh, when I was 15, a friend took me to London to see see a band he said you, you know you'll, you'll, you'll dig this you know and uh, it was a Victoria station in one of those big theatre there oh yeah and uh, I was in the front row and I really didn't know what to expect and the, the curtains opened up and it was it was a Duke Ellington orchestra oh my god <laughs> yeah just abs- all this colour and, and uh, Duke, the, the Duke he was off to the left on the with the piano and and there's all this color and behind the bandstands and pastels and color and this amazing music the best you could possibly get you know that that genre of music yeah and uh and then cat anderson came out and played summertime on the trumpet and the high notes just mm. my mouth was open the whole time <laughs> I and i uh, just just loved that music it was an amazing experience but back in Bromley, um, when I got back, uh, my good friend's older brother, you know, they had a, a, a record shop store in Bromley, and they, they they used to sell folkways recordings and big Brunzi, Leadbed, all that stuff, you know, Bodus Span and Champion Jack Dupree, another one of my favorites. That was skiffle days yes uh, Lonnie, Lonnie Donegan right? Lonnie yeah. Donegan and that yeah. was a huge influence the American uh, that's true yeah. uh, um, stuff that was happening yes yes yeah, he was good and uh, trad jazz you know Humphrey Littleton and, and all those guys Chris Barber yeah, Chris and, Barber yeah so sometimes I'd go over to Chislehurst Caves and listen to the trad jazz over there it's amazing amazing <laughs> stuff oh that's right I remember yeah kind of New Orleans music really uh, our version of it anyway <laughs> we tried <you> know. <laughs> <laughs> but that was it that was the you know yeah. that was the love and respect for it though, oh, wasn't yeah. it no, I yeah mean, that's right it just kind of became its own thing really you know we i'd say that those early british bands they kind of infused some degree of the celtic influence i think and some other influences just kind of created this thing which was different you know it just had to hopefully captured the spirit for all the guys i've i've known you know like like john lee and people like francis clay people like that it seems that they what they really respect is the uh, the guys that capture the spirit of what they did rather than necessarily note from note exactly what they already did right. nothing wrong with that learning that of course but somehow the guys that like nick gravenitis you know that took it to an, a new level became uh, something you know which is respectful of, of the, the original guys but stood on its own exactly mm-hmm. exactly yeah well Butterfield know, Bloomfield uh, all those guys you know, yeah. oh just the love oozed yeah. out of it didn't it yeah. uh, of what they were doing 
but yeah, that's my experience in 64 when I was 14. I, I went to a BBC live show and John Lee Hooker yeah. was on, you know, singing Dimples, and I'd never seen blues before, and it was just yeah. mind blowing uh, seeing yeah, somebody was, like that. He was amazing. It was amazing. Yeah. So, no, we're so lucky to, you know, you yes. to have had yes. those things to, to yeah. stand on the shoulders of. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. But now, um, music, you do a yeah. lot of different styles, though, don't you? That's true. Own, uh, it's been a long career. You know, I think of some musicians, uh, they define their career by maybe one or two bands. And uh, I've been in so many bands. <laughs> They're not all good. <laughs> So I've I've gone I've, I've grown to to love many kinds of music, but, but I'd say that almost everything I do that I really enjoy doing is influenced by blues or music or folk, you know, music from the heart, the root stuff. You know, that's really which is hard to imagine. Thinking that I was on built the city on rock and roll, you know, <laughs> the last thing I did with that band before all hell all hell was already oh, broken God. loose at that point. I was, I was out of there, you know. I just, but that's one of the better songs too, you know, of that era. Of, because that band became unrecognizable from the band I joined in 1974, right? Right. But, uh, that's a, but that's another story. That's an interesting twist, yeah. wasn't it? All yeah. Uh, but anyway, yeah. But back in sixty. 65 is when I turned pro, you know, with a band called the Sons of Fred. And it was a semi-pro band, and then we got a back backer, and, and, and we a record company, and, I, you know, I'm 16 years old. You know, <laughs> and, you know, we went on the road, and I, I'm just, I didn't see any money, but maybe somebody oh, did. Mostly the case, yeah. <laughs> yes, that's exactly the case, almost always, but not always, but... Yeah, but now, yeah, Sons of Fred—that was your first band uh, in England, and and you did a number of tracks, which we'll play one of. What were you playing? Were you on bass at that time? Um, well, the, the, I was playing bass, and I had a Farfisa organ as well, which I'd sometimes play. That sort of set the ball rolling with me playing either bass or keyboards, depending on the band I was with. Right? Oh, okay. For the rest of my career, really. Although, although really, I played mostly bass with this with that band. Yeah. The name, you know, so I mean, I've often wondered where, oh, right. you know, how, how we ended up with that name. And I, I, I don't remember asking anybody at the time, <laughs> although audiences would come up to me and say, well, who's Fred? Who's Fred then? I say, I don't know. I, Fred? I don't ask him. He said, <laughs> Ray came up with the name. But they already had the name when I joined. It was a semi-pro band. And I, I later, years later, I found out that it was uh, named after um, Spike Milligan from The Goon Show, right? The, right. The, right before uh, Monty Python, the thing that sort of set the tone for that type of humor. Right. But Spike Milligan was a really out there. He was absolutely madly insane, oh. brilliant, you know. Yeah. He had his own TV show called Son, Son of Fred <laughs> that lasted a very short time and only in London because they figured nobody else could... <laughs> figure out what was going on which is probably not true but but anyway they they yanked it the bbc or wherever i think it was a bbc they yanked it you know and uh, but ray named the band after that apparently it was a cult yeah. one of those cults because it's things. A, kind of an odd name and some people think it held us back oh no <laughs> <laughs> you know sons of fred i mean you know come on but it's kind of cool actually. enigmatic it is actually yeah. i love it's it it's a good band they played in tune and we had a really great guitar player and the, the singers Ray and Bo, like they, they got their inspiration from the Everly Brothers. Mm. So they, they had that way about them when they. But we did mostly covers, you know, a lot of some oh, yeah. blues, some R and B, um, and we did a lot of things like walked out, 
run and all, all kinds of things. Yeah, yeah. I interviewed Brian Paul last week. Oh, yeah. uh, you know, Brian Paul and the Tremblers, and obviously oh, really? they were okay. greatly influenced yeah. by uh, Buddy Holly. Oh yeah, you know, all that, that stuff. Was, it was That's just amazing, incredible stuff. You know, that, I love that where those inspirations come, and then all of a sudden it takes on this whole yeah. other form uh, in yeah. another country and another time. Yeah, it was uh, an amazing time. Six or seven nights a week on the road, mm. all over the British Isles. You know, sleeping in the back of an old van. And was it a Bedford? Pissing in the, yeah. you know, the, the, the tank to try to get to the next gas station when you and all kinds of things. Wait, know, hold just, on, hold on. Yeah. Pissing into the tank. Yeah, into that the extend water, petrol? the water tank. You know. Oh, the water. Yeah, yeah, sorry, <laughs> sorry, the radiator. Yes. <laughs> Although we probably wouldn't put us past past us to try that. Back then, exactly. Depending yeah. on how much beer you had, yeah. I did everything. Then I, I, I fell off the back of a stage. I, I, was, oh, no. I was, I did my best. Sort of only sixteen, you know. And I was leaning back against the curtain in the back of the stage with a cigarette hanging out of my mouth, and and then it, there was, but there was nothing there. You know, I just went <laughs> smashed down on the six feet down onto the concrete and carried on playing. And the oh, band no. was laughing so hard, but I carried on. What you do for your art. Yeah. You know. It's definitely <laughs> trial, trial by fire, you know. But we had some good times, I guess. A bunch of young guys. Yeah, I mean, what a time. Obviously, the whole thing with Beatlemania, and it was just such yeah. a huge interest in music, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. That's just stupendous. Well, let me um, play a bit of uh, Oh, yeah. Well, this, is, this, is one of the, this is one of our singles. We, uh, I it was on Atlantic, I think, or something like that. And. Uh, that we did a TV show with this one, Thank You Lucky Stars. It was cool. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and uh, so that was, anyway, this is that track. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. 
some good energy in that. Yes, and yes, right, energy. That's a good way to describe it. Yeah, <laughs> but you know, we but we played in June, and that's really a big deal, you know. In those it? days, <laughs> <laughs> and, and Mick was an amazing guitar player, actually. Yeah, yeah could you tell us about uh, Mick Hutchinson? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he, um, classically trained, you know, just uh, amazing technique, uh, crazy as a loon, <laughs> and still is. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, he, he um, lives life on his own terms. But a brilliant guitar player. Yeah, that's this is this is very early. This is back before the Who were even doing their uh, feedback stuff. I mean, we're talking right about that time, I guess. But Mick was right up there doing that feedback. Stuff. He was on the it was brand new when he did that. Yeah, it was very powerful yeah. solo. That yeah, it's good. One of my favorite albums is that Clark Hutchinson. Uh, oh yeah, yes, he did that, that right after. after so the intense, right? We we had a band to get. I, I did a band called Fleur de Lis after oh, yeah. this playing keyboards. I played bass on that with Sons of Fred, but then I played piano with Fleur de Lis, and then then uh, we did Sam Gopal Dream, and that's uh, right after that. And Mick actually called me up and asked me to uh, come and play with him and Sam Kapal, this Indian tabla player at the UFO Club in London in oh, yeah. uh, very early 67. That was a pretty amazing uh, experience, you know, just a three-piece. We did sort of an Indo rock jazz thing, I don't know what you'd call it. Right. And uh, but the, Sam was a trained tabla player, amazing musician. And we did all the psychedelic clubs, but that was Mick, you know, so he called me... After the flood release, he called me up and said, do you want to come down? And, and we, we was playing ragas on the guitar, and these beautiful <laughs> ragas. And we, we did, the, you know, just crazy times, you know, in Middle Earth Club, with hanging out with Graham Bond in the middle of the, oh, through the night, Bond. you know, and uh, he was mad, crazy guy, brilliant <laughs> yeah. guy. And, oh, my God, yeah. Yeah, and uh, came to a sticky, horrible end, of course, with yeah. stoned out of our minds, and it was just an amazing uh, period that that, time in london you know. well yeah um, uh, joe boyd you know his stable you know he yeah. started ufo and yeah uh, that's his, right his, you know floyd and uh yeah we used to play the same places as fairport and floyd and all those guys yeah it was, london was a uh, really alive you know it's amazing music scene back then it was yeah i used to go to you know as yeah. a in the audience yeah. all those uh, all those well, things you were doing and, uh, hendrix jimmy <laughs> uh uh, sad Imus, yeah, that was a lot of fun. Was he a generous, um, you know, jammer? Yeah, well, I mean, we, I mean, it was. He came up, and Mick gave him gave Jimmy his guitar, which he played back backwards, and then Mick picked up my bass, <laughs> and I was on the B three, and so we just played like that, and just kind of just did it. But Sam playing his tablas, mm. but he was Jimmy basically he did a thing with his uh, mic stand where he did the slide down the strings oh yeah and that was pretty effective and interesting and that was 1967 yeah so I got to know Mitch and Noel and those guys and Mitch Mitchell's an amazing drummer wow and uh very different instruments you you were yeah. playing bass and the organ how did that yeah happen that split uh, uh just because you did. like well it just started out because I, I i knew piano as a kid you know and i, I like to listen to the blues guys and otis span all that sort of thing and uh you know, I, I just, uh, I was playing bass and then somebody needed a piano player, so that just kind of, but but Sam Gopal's dream, I was mostly playing bass with those guys too, and I'd, so, if, if there was a B3 there already, then I'd, on some tunes, I'd play a sort of a um, tambura-type uh, drone, you know, mm. and, then, and then with the ragas with my right hand, 
on the, on the organ against Mick's tub. I mean, Sam's tabla player, Sam Kapal on tablas, and Mick playing the guitar. No vocalists. We didn't have any vocalists. Okay. So we almost recorded. I think it was actually Richard Branson. You know, the very mm. early. He said he was. He wanted to sign us, but he wanted us to find a singer. And Mick kept asking me to sing. I said, "Oh, you know, I don't sing. You know, I, said, I can't sing to save my life." And he was right. And uh, so we just stayed instrumental, and that that was that, you know. But uh, but it was there was some, it was recorded by the BBC. Filmed us once mm. with everybody else at the Christmas on Earth show in London, in 1967. Mm. and uh, Hendrix and Traffic Pink Floyd were all on the same bill and the only footage that survived of course was I think it was a band called Tomorrow and oh, Tomorrow, uh, Keith and, West yeah. and uh, Hendrix that, that footage survived but the rest of it was gone I don't know idea uh, where yeah. ooh that would be precious yeah I'd like, I'd like to I'd like to find it I think I think, I think we were okay <laughs> maybe sometimes that stuff's best left a, a memory isn't it right. <laughs> well, yeah. you know, with computers now you, they can yeah. alter it <laughs> that's true but, no it's had some good moments you know uh, yeah. In that, I've been talking about the sixties. Obviously, that was my formative time as a fan of yeah. music, yeah. and and to watch these incredible musicians like Hendrix or uh, yeah. just up on the stage or the Floyd or whatever. I mean, that was just so stunning as a yeah, uh, you know, just just in the audience just well, to be playing well, next. I to them. mean, when I was playing with that band, the second band, I was with Fleur de Lis. Oh yeah, we were playing um, kind of Motowns, you know, and all that stacks and that kind of thing. I mean, you know, it was a good band. You know, one of the singers replaced Stevie Winwood and Spencer Davis, mm. and when when he left, and uh, Phil Sawyer, he was very good. Oh, yeah. Towards the end of that band, it must it might have been very early '67. I was at the Marquee Club. We we went to the Marquee Club to see what the, what the fuss was about with this new band called Pink Floyd. <laughs> and I remember we were standing in the back, you know, like, kind of, oh, what's this, you know, sort yeah. of thing. And, and and but it was really impressing the hell out of me. You know, I was thinking now the, the freedom of this music and everything about it was just amazing. It was right at the beginning of that whole open openness in music and arts and everything, right? And politics and everything. And so they uh, sort of represented all that, and it, it had a profound effect on me. And so that's that's what. Then when Mick called me about the Sam Gopal, but they come down to the UFO club, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, let's go, let's play some stuff. That was a yeah. UFO club at that point. It was before the press got a hold of it it was a, a real really sort of avant-garde expressive uh, experimental music and the arts and, and mime troops and all kind of, you know it's that kind of right. whole thing about it that was when it was in on yeah, Tottenham Court, Tom Road. Court Road right. bottom of Tottenham Court Road uh, right. the original place but then right after that that's when it exploded that exploded and the press coined the word flower power right. <laughs> yeah so but uh, oh, it was yeah. an amazing time it was it, it was just so new I mean that yeah. for, for the staid British public yeah. you know I mean something like that was so exotic it's true the 60s uh, were so uh, amazing yeah just <laughs> fashion to be young and yeah. a musician in the 60s was something else oh my goodness yeah <laughs> we won't talk about all the we know, won't go there the, the girls and <laughs> the drugs and, well, yeah well, let's yeah, yeah sex and drugs and rock and yeah, roll what, we, what do we know I mean you know yeah it's just <laughs> boy a decade went on but that was you know yeah. anything that starts it's always that fresh yes um, yeah well that's right impetus. it had its downside later and uh, uh, but to us at the time 
I don't know. I'm not sort of condoning the behavior, but but it was just what it was. It was of the time, yes. I was an old pirate radio person uh, a bit later, but did um, did the uh, original pirate boats um, uh, influence you? Well, they they used to play, they played, uh, I mean, Sons of Fred reached, uh, I was thinking Radio London charts or something, were in their charts. And, And yeah, those guys are amazing. So those boats, uh, you know, the, on the, the lighthouse boats off, right. off the coast of England, for, I mean, were broadcasting rock and roll. Because up before that, the only thing, uh, you know, when I first started listening to rock and roll, the only radio we could get, my brother and I, was Radio Luxembourg. Right. And it would, like, crackle in and out with this faint signal and get loud and then go back into the distance. Exactly. <laughs> British bands knew the fade-in and fade-out very well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, I just want to mention that uh, that Sons of Fred track we played. Mm. We recorded that at EMI Studios in, in London, yeah. which became Abbey Road. It was Abbey Road. It was very different back then. Hmm. Back, how, in, how back so? in those days, the technicians in the studio wore lab, white lab coats. <laughs> yeah. And there and was a cafeteria with a tray and like a like a like you're in a, a factory yeah. just you know people plonking stuff on your plate and that's oh, uh, it was very different from the later highbrow sort of studios you know with the big record producers earning lots of money and mm. uh, it was, more work just, a day yeah I don't remember who actually produced us actually it was one of the guy local one of the guy house guys there you know and he, yeah so he was great but we were recording on the same equipment the Beatles had recorded please please me on and that sort of thing wow. but we didn't sell anywhere near as many records <laughs> <laughs> the magic had left it <laughs> yeah but it was a, it was a cool studio I, I recorded in abbey road again i think it was 1973 on a roy harper album oh roy yeah, harper yeah but oh. it was a folk album yeah. although we had jimmy page and keith moon on another track but there's the track we did together, a couple of tracks, but the, one of them was Acapulco Gold with Max Middleton, the keyboard player, great jazz piano player. Mm, and I played bass and you know, just a three-piece thing, and that was nice. What makes for a good studio to record in? Uh, well, over the years, it's changed. The, 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 the designs and uh, preferences for studio and recording, used, it started out relatively open with a few baffles, you know, baffling the, uh, keeping the the instruments separate mm. as much as possible on the recording, but then that got really crazy in the uh, early seventies when the funk and the great stuff. You know, the idea was to uh, try to separate everything as much as possible. Mm. You know, drums and vocals and bass and guitar. So because they they like to remix with everything really dry. Then you know, very dry in your face, cool funk sound, right? right. And they did that by putting carpeting all over the studio, the floor, the ceiling, the walls, everything you could possibly... They didn't want any reflection. Mm, Just that dull thud. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) And that later on changed with studios to to being completely open. You know, they'd take all that, rip all that stuff out. They'd have baffles to move the sound around, the reflection of the sound, but they wanted a live sound, you know. And uh, But Led Zeppelin, I think they recorded... Uh, some of the, the, the amazing drums of some of that early stuff was recorded in a really big open sounding thing, you know, mm. just with with no close miking, just just mics, just a little bit away from the drums, huh. creating this gigantic big sound because they were really high quality mics. Uh, and in the eighties, engineers and producers 
started to get obsessed with tuning and <laughs> annoying things like that and uh, everything had to be perfect and it, was, it took away a lot of the spontaneity actually mm. it got kind of not not always not all bands of course but a lot of the bands of the record companies had found out and decided what sold and what didn't sell sold would sell and and they uh, started to try to uh, style bands to sound like other hits on the radio and they, they'd start taking bands like Jefferson Starship in the 70s they really still a really free form cool band playing you know long shows and mm. uh, but then in the 80s we, after the riot we had in Germany the uh, <laughs> Grace left for, for one album and came back and but they, we had a new record record producer and he took it in a more rock direction and we had a new singer a new lead vocalist uh, singing because Marty wasn't singing it with us anymore oh, man things moved in a very different direction it's okay for a while it was just straight ahead different just still good rock and roll where you recorded your own tracks hmm. and uh but then but i remember how obsessive people were, were becoming the engineers and producers about how everything had to be absolutely perfect you know and that's yeah and there's, I guess there's nothing wrong with that in the face value, but yeah. it does. It tends to take away some of the spontaneity, I think. And uh, anyway, but uh, yeah, overthinking it. Yeah, then it, it got really bad in the mid '80s. It was good. It's okay in the early '80s, but then it got bad in the mid '80s, and, and it just became blatantly looking for hits. Mm. And that. So the recording studios were really as. Uh, as good, uh, reflected who the record producer and the band was, you know, the, it was just a, it was just a recording device, really. You know, they had beautiful, great mics, and yeah. depending who went in there to to play, that's you know, that's where the recording studios, you know, everything got turned upside down, of course. But after after the digital age, oh my goodness, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a whole other subject. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, some steam hammer oh yeah yeah um, that's lined up shoot tell us about that uh, uh, yeah that was a, it's, it's some other tracks like we could play but i didn't know you know i can't, can't it's going to be here all night sounds good and other bands but this band i liked steam hammer they were they were they were freddie king's uk backing band mm. and when he come to the uk and great band and I, I this is an album i played some piano on with those guys and uh, so you'll never know
Yes. And that was real vinyl, by the way, folks. And you were on this. Yeah, yeah, I played yeah, just a session. You know, I played piano with friends of mine. I didn't go on the road with them, but I played piano on that album. Uh, Martin Pugh on guitar, he's, he was a really good guitar player. And, they, and Marty Quiddington also was in that band for a while. That I also played with on the, I worked with, with Rod Stewart stuff. Mickey Waller was drum was the drummer as well, but not on that track, I don't think. Yeah. Uh, he was with Jeff Beck and great drummer. Oh yes, yeah. Working with bands, but obviously you did so much session work per se, just dropping in and, and doing yeah. uh, tracks. That's uh, that must have been. Uh, I mean, like um, uh, Jimmy Page used to do, just uh, pick up his guitar and uh, go do a track. Yeah, he might have been a little more sought after than I was, but <laughs> uh, but he, yeah, you're right. Same sort of thing. I, I did I did a, a really cool album called Jade with Marianne Siegel, and that was kind of a Fairport Convention style band and uh, they, they, we had guys from pentangle and different people on that album that was a good album and yeah i did, did quite a bit of stuff back then steam hammer great band good, good band indeed well there was some great musicians uh, running around britain yeah you know they learnt uh, yeah well from all the americans who just the true. records and them coming over and uh, backing them uh, and, and so they, oh yeah they, freddie king man I, I, oh. I went to a rehearsal those guys and he was there and i got to shake his hand oh, and a yeah. big guy and uh, what a presence you know and i actually have a, a live recording of him uh, of the steam hammer with freddie king that nobody else has heard i should have bought that oh wow uh, yeah they, they in fact uh, one of those they sent it to me fairly recently i didn't know it existed i'm not on it or anything but so what um it's an amazing recording wow yeah no I, he's he's my favorite guitarist yeah, he didn't know he was being king. recorded that's always uh, the best time right <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah, it was good. No, just just the ease, the way he played, uh, it was just, I, you know, you call yeah. it effortless, but of course it wasn't, but it just seemed that way. The yes. way it was just beautiful. Yes, beautiful. it's true. Very it's different true. from B.B. King or, you know, Albert yeah. King. Very different. Yes, he was amazing. Uh, came over to this, you know, to America with Lee Stevens. Lee Stevens from Blue Cheer was in oh. London, and he was trying to distance himself from Blue Cheer. <laughs> I keep telling him, Lee, you should embrace it. He said, Oh man, I just, you know. Anyway, um, great guitar player, you know. And but anyway, he said, if you're ever in the states, look. He was in London. He said, if you're ever over there, look me up. And he gave me a little, tore off a piece of paper and wrote a little diagram of Santa Monica Pier, merry-go-round, arrow, stairs. And that was it. It had no phone number or anything. So if you're ever in the, over there, look me up. So six months later, I show up, 21 years old, five bucks in my pocket or something. Somehow I made it to Santa Monica Pier. And yeah, and he was there, fortunately, still there. And we got a band together called Silver Meter with Mickey Waller on drums. Hmm. Yeah, then I then came back, and then Mickey got me involved with uh, playing with the first Rod Stewart album. Oh, yeah. Gasoline Alley. Played bass on Cut Across Shorty and piano on Country Comforts. And then and then, uh, got, then I joined Stone Ground, and then um, we did an album. Then I, after every picture tells, then I went back to record with Rod. You know, read every picture tells a story. And but right before that, I... I Joey Covington had, 
had, hmm. had um, took me down to play on the Papa John Creatures album. Oh, yeah. And it was on the track, Janitor Drives a Cadillac, and that was Grace was singing, so that's the first time I'd been introduced to Grace. Oh. And that was a, that was a great, great album. And then I also did a live broadcast that year with, with Jerry Garcia and from the KSAN-FM record library <laughs> on the Richard Gossett show. And that was on Sutter Street then. And, and it was all very, lots of dead air. T- you know, it was very kind of grassroots Oh yeah, stuff. just like be- this. Before yeah. they got, yeah, before they they started recording, I mean, broadcasting from the record plant and things. Oh, okay. It's like this is very early, and and it was just uh, so. I John played the guitar, Bob played the rhythm guitar and sang, and Maria Tipolina on bass, and I played played the old upright piano in the corner, yeah. and Jerry played pedal steel. Jerry goes here on pedal oh. steel, and he he Jerry didn't think of himself as much of a pedal steel player, but he had mm. amazing note selection. Oh on the pedal steel and he was actually a very good pedal steel player <laughs> it was great we really connected on that thing and later on after the because um, after every picture tells a story I did a tour with Long John Baudry his first US tour hmm. on bass because you know, with Rod I played mostly piano on his albums Jerry after that Jerry asked me to to come and play on his first solo album and I couldn't do it because I was out with Long John Baudry and I often wonder <laughs> what it would have been uh, like if I'd have done that. But oh well. Interesting. Well, tell people about... Uh, most Americans know nothing about Long John Baudry, but he casts literally a long shadow over British music. Yeah, uh, right. With the people who were in his band. I mean, you know, yeah. Elton John, <laughs> Rod Stewart. Yeah. You um, know, Brian Auger. Yeah, in those early early years, yeah, he, he was a tremendous influence. On, uh, and he was a wonderful entertainer and vocalist and you know he was good friends with a lot of those old guys when they'd come over to to, to, to play over there well they were old to us right. <laughs> uh, they'd come over there to play uh, John Lee and all those people and, and but you know he was pretty close with those guys he was, he was a very cool person John Long John Baudry mm. and then we so after he played on Rod Stewart's Every Picture Tells a Story on that track actually I'm on that track too and, and then and he was recording a, he rec- was recording a new album uh, he, after that was finished he needed a, a bass player to go on on the road so I went on the road with his first couple of US tours mm. and uh, that was a, a fun time oh, he, he, he was yeah. really an amazing singer <laughs> entertainer I got some. I have all kinds of stories to tell about that. And six foot seven, he was. It was amazing. Oh, oh, uh, long but time, I, yeah, but yeah. I'm at that, there's too long, too many stories. Oh yeah, for here. Now. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, crazy time. Well, that's the whole point, isn't yeah. it? Uh, when you're young, I mean, if you're yeah. not going to do anything crazy, it's uh, that's true. I'd be surprised. That's true. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was great. Through John Cipollino, I got to know Nick Ravenitis. Ah, and. Actually, when I left Starship years later, you know, Nick, Nick was uh, instrumental in helping me sort of like a therapist, really, without trying to be a therapist, you know. I mean, I, he just let me, I just left Starship. I was in such a, he was in therapy, literally. And uh, just yeah. went, went and um, started playing the blues clubs with Nick, you know, on piano, and we had, we had some great times together. But back in um, 1970. I think it was 72. Yeah, we did a um, did an album together, and it was the um, Mill Valley Bunch, it was called. Ah. The album it was, it was produced oh, yeah. by Mike Bloomfield, 
And but because a record company hassles, they got all the names they put. They couldn't say anybody's real name, so uh, they put Doe after everybody's name. <laughs> and so the later the bootleg albums got it all wrong about who played what. And anyway, but uh, so this is this track, Settle It in the Bedroom, Baby. This is it's kind of yeah, it's Nick's Blue Gravy Band, amazing band. Blue Gravy. And I'm just, I'm just guesting on piano on this track. And my good friend Mark Naftalin is playing on oh. the other tracks, a lot, lot of the other piano on a lot of the other tracks, but I played on this, this track and uh, Hollywood, I think.
Tell us about them. Oh, yeah. They, that was one of Nick's amazing band. And uh, I said, I was fortunate to uh, be able to sit in with those guys. So that was amazing players. And that was uh, an album that Mike Bloomfield produced. Yeah, I think it was a Golden State Recorders or something like that. A lot of, lot of great tracks on there with different players and things. And you said they weren't allowed to initially um, mention who was on the tracks. No, some kind of weird, you know, legal thing. Yeah. <laughs> but that's it's funny because out of all the tracks I, I've played on in my career, that's one of the ones I'm most proud of, but nobody knows. <laughs> it happens, you know. It happens. But, uh, but Nick and I got to play a lot you know, over the years, so it's, it's wonderful. Great, great talent, man. Just, uh, you know, he wrote, oh. born in Chicago. He used to write for Janice, and he's was great guitarist and a wonderful presence yeah and a wonderful thread through uh, that music uh, for so many years yeah yeah i remember when uh, years later when jerry uh, nick Nick and i were playing a benefit for brian wilson not the not from the beach boys but the vietnam veteran oh yeah uh, s brian uh, wilson i interviewed him yeah yeah and um and we did a uh i was really i was i was really into uh also trying to um, you know stop weapons shipments to, mm. to El Salvador and got in trouble with his legs when the train Seven, ran over his legs yeah. and everything and uh, we did a benefit and Jerry came down and sat in on guitar with, with Nick's band and when I asked him about it he said, said oh, he'd, love to, he'd love to come down but he doesn't want to sing he said I just want to play the blues <laughs> so he just stood in the back and Nick, of course we did all Nick's stuff and and uh, Nick would give him a solo every song, and it was fun. Oh, yeah, beautiful. It's good. And it's just a delight uh, hearing uh, those stories and, and those people you've uh, come in contact with, Pete. 
Well, I think everybody's probably asleep by now, I think. <laughs> oh, you know, we, we're fans. We love it. That's the whole thing, isn't it? It's the minute yeah. of um, what makes us love the music. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean... Because um, it didn't come from nowhere, the we're, music. We're all in it together, you know? Yeah. Everybody. People that play the music, people that listen to the music cyclical it's, it's, we feed each other you know and uh, one needs the other and uh, the, the ups and the downs got you know got bless it all man you know it's right. all part of the part of the game well especially uh, uh, blues I mean you've got to be down to know how to play yeah well that's true <laughs> to know what the yeah. blues is you know? so I think I think yeah on a, any level I think of society or I think you, know, you everybody has some degree of angst and suffering in their life at some point it seems and uh, anybody can can be can feel that you know i mean I, I that's controversial i guess but of course it was born in real suffering you know right and going back but uh, i was speaking with a friend the other day about um you know baby booming music but really the music we were listening to was that slightly older it was the the kids yeah. who had come up during the war, yeah. and so that must have given a very different mindset, I would think. Yes, that. yes. I mean, to have to have gone through uh, as a child, gone through the war, and yeah, I mean, it was it was uh, everywhere. It was, it was ubiquitous. It was everywhere, all around you. Everybody in the nineteen fifties, in the late forties, early fifties. Uh, although, you know, it was everywhere. There were bombed out buildings, food rationing. Yeah, it was an intense time. You know, kids playing and burned out, <laughs> bombed out houses. And exactly. every now and again, somebody would come across an old shell casing from some dogfight overhead, you know. And then every now and again, the newspapers, there'd be an unexploded bomb or something that would appear, you know. Exactly. Yeah. I don't know. So definitely, I think, gave a different view on life yeah, for that generation, that's I, I true. feel. I think so, yeah. You know, just uh, definitely has to hang over you in some way or the other or the release from it. Yeah. You know. Yeah, it was pretty, pretty intense. We've got Kathy McDonald lined up here. Can you tell us? Uh, yeah, well, I, I, I arranged and co-produced this album, arranged the music and everything, and, and it's called Insane Asylum. Kathy was an amazing, amazing singer. That I think she was in the I Cats, and, and she was with mm. Leon Russell, and just an amazing, very talented singer, crazy and <laughs> in a wonderful way. And so we did this album. And uh, yeah, this is one of the tracks. This is a uh, really famous track. This is a, we actually did this, covered this song, Heat Wave, before uh, Linda Ronstadt oh, did. Yeah. She came out with it a bit later and had a big hit with it. We probably should have released this as a single, but we didn't. Hello. <laughs> <laughs>
yeah. What yeah. a voice. <laughs> yeah, she was amazing. Yeah. And that was, uh, we had we we had the Pointer Sisters singing backups. Uh, that was, uh, oh, my goodness. Was the easiest people to arrange the music for because they, I just say, well, come up with something. You know? <laughs> and they did, you know. <laughs> and then um, they just knew each other so well. And uh, that was Ronnie Montrose and, and Greg Douglas on guitars. Ronnie Montrose. Yeah, on that, on that track. Other tracks, uh, we had Neil Sean, John Cipollina and different people. But that track... Uh, Bobby Hall on percussion. Yeah, it was great. What fun to play with such great people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, it was. It was.